Hey horror fans and welcome back to the Week in Horror, January 26th through February 1st. I'm JL and with me as always are Alex and Eugene. Hey guys. What's up everybody? And this week we are super excited to announce that joining us for this week in horror, she starred in Criminal Minds, Law and Order SVU, and epically twisted film Bastard, which is currently available on VOD. Our very, very special guest horror actress, Rebecca Kennedy. How you doing, Rebecca? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yay! Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, Rebecca. And for our patrons, we'll be hanging out after the episode, getting to know Rebecca, and answering some of your questions for our After Dark segment of the part of the show. So let's go ahead and kick this week off. Yes, let's kick this bad boy off. All right, because we got a bunch to go through as we round out the end of January. So we're going to kick this thing off with some sci-fi. Um, this uh, one premiered January 26th, 1996. So I was 16. Shit. Fuck no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you don't even want to know. <laughs> the, the ongoing gag, yes, because I was 16. I was six. Oh, God damn. <laughs> I was six years old. And... <laughs> This little bad boy is a sci-fi horror film called Screamers. Ah. Ooh. Yes. Actually, actually kind of a kind of a, a guilty pleasure of mine. Directed by Christian Duguay and based on a short based, kind of based on a short story called Second Variety by legendary sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. The screenplay was by Dan O'Bannon and Miguel Tejada Flores. And it starred Ooh, Epic Robocop. Peter Weller was in this bad boy, along with Roy Dupuy. Jennifer Rubin and Andy Lauer, and the story, the film, which deviates a little bit from the uh, story, from the short story itself, was about uh, two groups of colonists on this desolate mining planet who have erupted into a civil war, and then in the demilitarized zone between the two camps are a breed of robots that they have designed as kind of weapons of war called Screamers. And nobody goes into the demilitarized zone because the screamers will kill anything and everyone that enters into that area. And so, and the film follows not only a mission to go and try to cross that territory, but how the screamers have begun to adapt and evolve over time. A freaky little film with some really decent special effects. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it really does. 95 or 96. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, there was like a very defining time though because it just it got into like you know there was like really bad stuff that came out but then all all of a sudden 97 98 you started getting like whoa okay they're starting to pick stuff up now and you hit 2000 and i mean sci-fi has gone so far since then well i have to admit that i didn't see it when it came out um, I won't reveal uh, how old I am because that's silly, but um, <laughs> I missed it uh, for probably reasons of, you know, being young and unaware. Um, so I, I watched it recently, actually, when you guys told me that we were doing this. Um, so I, I feel like I can't quite appreciate it being out in the 90s. However, I do think that it still holds up pretty well for being uh, as old as it is. Um, I thought it was really fun and creepy and I mean killer robots you really can't beat that so I thought it was really uh, worth watching so I appreciate I appreciate that I got to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's absolutely cool that 
this is this part of the cool part of doing the podcast is sometimes our guests come on and they haven't seen because we you know, we're encyclopedias of this shit, and sometimes we get guests you know, like you who have who is the first time they've seen a film like this, and it's it's awesome to kind of live vicariously through that and kind of get their first response. Uh, that because you know I saw it you know probably you know, it was like ninety seven ninety eight when I watched this movie so see, seeing that is kind of special for us. Yeah, it was. I love sci fi, so I was excited to I uh, get to experience it for the first time. Sweet, <laughs> and it's nice because it actually it came out a little bit before you know the over reliance of CG, so it still had a lot of, like practical effects, and you know I've always liked it when you're actually be, actually building robots and moving them around and doing all kinds of stuff like that so the actors get a chance to really like interact with it that had to be so much fun being on the set of that movie just having to build those things yeah uh, that was really oh sorry i was gonna say as an actor like i yeah practical is still the best even you know they obviously can do so much with cgi now but if you can actually have something on set nothing beats that in what way, though? Was, like a visual way because it looks better or it's like more fun to do as, as an actor? Um, uh, because you, there's something about being able to actually interact with something that's actually there. Like for me, the new uh, Jurassic World, like I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan. I love the first one especially. Um, you know, I liked the new ones, but there's something about the difference between the ones that are CGI and the ones that they actually built. Like, there's the one that they built for the first uh, Jurassic World, and there's just, like, weight to it. And it just, as an actor, you just, there's something about that interaction that you just, you can't get with CGI because you're, like, staring at a tennis ball or whatever, you know? <laughs> and Be I, scared of this tennis ball. <laughs> right, and I understand completely why they have to do it because, obviously, CGI makes it where you can have so much more than you, you can actually have before. But it is really nice when you're actually get to work with the actual, like in the Mandalorian, that like Baby Yoda was a puppet they built. You know, it's like that's so awesome that they actually got to interact with the real thing. So, they got to play with apparently, Baby Yoda. That, apparently, that was a huge that was a huge point of contention because in a, a, an interview that I read would had that they were originally going to go with the CG, make it CGI, mm-hmm. and the producer on that, and I think it was John Favreau as well, were like, absolutely not. Is like you cannot do that with this, you know. This, to, you know, not only to stay true to the originals, to or to four, five, and six, you know, but to generate that same kind of pathos. Because if Mando was sitting there interacting with, and he, we already can't see his face, yeah. you know. So and so, <laughs> and if, he, if he's going to sit there and react, you react to nothing that's being there. It's not going to be able to sell. He's got to have something to bring out those little nuances in his physical performance because it's got to be in his body. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. so, uh, you know, I uh, firmly believe that Baby Yoda saved, saved, you know, it wasn't just that, you know, but Baby Yoda, that was a perfect choice. Whoever, whoever <laughs> stuck with that, stuck the landing. Absolutely. I, you, but, you said saved, but the, Alex, saved the deal. I just, I was remembering a meme I saw earlier about, it was like Ray had said, oh no, the, the series is screwed. And then it was Mando and Baby Yoda. It was like, don't worry, me and Space Pikachu got this. <laughs> 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 but you were speaking about you, you Alex. You were, you were mentioning the set on that, the 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 set piece on that, because the entire set, um, it was brilliant. Pretty much the entire movie Screamers was was a two location set. You had an interior of this kind of like you know 
military style barracks. Base mines. Okay. Thingy, uh... This kind of base thing. So the interiors of that and then the exterior was just you just was just wasteland. Just like a yeah, dusty so, ghost town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it it's and the the first one is claustrophobic. It's confined. It's you know, it's dank, it's dark, you know, it, there's just just riddled with people everywhere. It's cramped and annoying. Very, very militaristic. And then you mini immediately step outside and everything is just gone. It's just rocks, dirt, and nothingness. And so there was a, I think this film was successful in creating not only a sense of paranoia being in such close confines, and then you know when you realize the robots can mimic people, you know at certain at a certain point and, yeah. that it generates that paranoia, and then and then turns around you 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 take ten feet outside and just an absolute sense of desolation. There's just nothing. And I thought, yeah, exactly. And I thought the director and the cinematographer were brilliant in balancing that. And of course, the lighting choices utilized to create the you know the essence of an alien planet when they I think they shut this thing out just. Uh, in a desert somewhere. I'm not, I'm not sure where the location was, but yeah, they a brilliant little setup that was very evocative and created a very nice atmosphere, especially sci-fi wise. Oh God. And then you throw on killer robots that can like self replicate. And you know, if you accidentally turn around a corner and run into one of them, you're super screwed because <laughs> they, they just, just screw some people up in this movie. <laughs> it's just arms and legs and <laughs> body. And who, and who better, who better than Peter? Webb? <laughs> Peter I mean, yeah. <laughs> Taking off he... arms and legs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean like the whole thing behind all of it and being back, you know, in 95, you had, you know, your cold war and all this other stuff and you get these nuclear post-apocalyptic ideas and you know, what would happen if we ended up in this situation. And then, like I said, you throw robots in there that, you know, can, like you said, mimic other people. You're just, you're screwed. And you're de- like you said, desolate. And from the feel of the movie and from what you get, there's nowhere to go. Like you're done. And so you got to survive and not only deal with humans, but then robots and then robots that can mimic humans. And you just, I mean, I don't know, that would, It'd be terrifying. As sci-fi as like killer robots are, it, that would be the worst thing, especially coming into 2020 and you've got AI, a technology that would easily... See, I'm a firm believer that AI is a terrible idea and I feel like people take it so lightly. No, I, I seriously, I do. I feel like people take it so lightly, but all it takes is just one, one short circuit, one thing to go wrong for AI to completely wipe out. And it wouldn't take very long. Like, it happened pretty fast. Yes. Alex Alex freaked out the first time he started talking about things. Then he pulled up a Google search on his phone, and it was the exact thing he was talking about. See, in that, it's it's not even that that is like, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. It's like, no, I can believe that happened. I understand the technology behind it, and I don't like it. I don't like it at all. <laughs> you can look into my life. It's not that. It's not that exciting. Go ahead. Snooping all my stuff. Here's all my account info and whatever. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I don't want to have to feel like I'm taking a shower and being like, all right, is my smart shower going to fucking kill me? Like, I don't know. Is the shower watching you? Is it, it like. Could be. I, don't know. I, have a, I have a smoke alarm system in here that if it senses smoke, it screams fire, fire, like in the room that you're standing in because there's motion sensors. And I don't, I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> Look into my boring life. That's fine. Just stop looking at me all day long. It's kind of creepy. But now going back to the going back to the to the robots because the robots in this one were particularly slick mm-hmm. as you know, as far as design concepts go. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was it was actually kind of an idea that they were kind of playing with 
for a little bit and for a while in terms of like how to facilitate these but one of the things they wanted to go is for like the lethality of it that's why you get like kind of like the saw blade at the very front they wanted it to be brutal as much of a kind of a sci-fi premise that the film had they wanted still that horror brutality whereas you know you have some of the other you know, like Battlestar Galactica or stuff like that, where you still have like killer robots or like Terminator, you have killer robots, but it's kind of like, oh, well, they'll shoot people or stuff like that. So it still has like Terminator goes more on sci-fi. They wanted this to be like specifically horror. And they actually, they made it work because it only had a budget of $20 million. So, which, you know, I know, you know, everybody else <laughs> Man, is like $20 million. $20 million. That's <laughs> only $20 million. But, you know, in the... As we know in the film world, $20 million isn't actually a lot, especially for a sci-fi film when you're doing practical effects. It's pretty impressive. And I have to admit, this is kind of impressive. That meant a lot of money because if you have your actors, but there was only a handful of your primary actors. Then you have two sets. And I know that, that the underground bunker said that that doubled, that they used the same space for the for the enemy troops as they did for the for the protagonist troops. And then you have your desert area, so that's pretty much just your camera crew is just following them as they as they walk from point A to point B, and so it's an interesting concept that the vast majority of the money obviously went into the the little things that helped it to create your universe, and of course in the robots themselves because they did a lot of work, especially the big David scene when the when the doors open they they return back to the good base you know to, towards their base mm-hmm. and then the doors open up and it's just that army of davids come walking out like that was still is kind of freaky in my eye that would just be really, uh, uh, that kind of still gets me <laughs> to this day but yeah uh, practical effects always the way to go i mean come on you can't beat that preview in terminator you know when after she blows him up in the truck and he comes out of there and it's like nothing on him just the robot itself and that was a puppet being worked on it that was just brilliant brilliant shit it is. I'll, I'll take it. I'll definitely. I'll take practical effects all day long. So given given that, and Alex mentioned being that Philip K. Dick, you know, he was deeply inspired, and his kind of sci-fi was deeply inspired by things like the Vietnam War and the Cold War, and just the pervasive dread of society and like that. He he generated a just. He's a legendary writer. I mean, he was the guy behind uh, Terminator, and uh, Cameron actually ripped that idea off of him and. Made, made the film Terminator, and Dick actually sued him and got his name in the credits and actually got a, an, an undisclosed settlement over that whole uh, shebang. So he's the mind behind a lot of fantastic stories uh, that have been adapted to films. Uh, most notably, uh, Do Robots Dream of Electric Sheep was adapted into Blade Runner by Ridley Scott. So his name is out there. You know, Most know him um, and his legendary body of work. Uh, my question is for our audience, what would be your, what's your favorite Philip K. Dick adaptation. You know, he's a legendary he's a legendary sci-fi writer. And a lot of stuff got made. We'd like to know what what uh, what you think. What's your favorite? Or if something has not been adapted, what do you think would make a good adaptation? Let us know in the comments below. And what do you say, Alex? What do we got next on the list? I think we'll move down the line to. I hear we got a good one. <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> January 20th, 2005, this gem was dropped in our fucking laps. Uh, <laughs> Alone in the Dark, directed by our best friend, Uwe Boll. <laughs> this one was written by uh, Ellen, um, I'm going to butcher, Mastai. Um, starring Christian Slater, Tara Reid, <laughs> Stephen Dorff. <laughs> 
God, I'm sorry. I'm trying to take this seriously. Uh, Frank Turner and Matthew Walker were this one as well. Uh, well, you can take these actors seriously because these are actually some talented actors. Hey, no, a lot of them were. There's maybe a couple in there that could have stayed home. But um, <laughs> So this, this movie is actually about a paranormal investigator who um, is looking into the death of a friend and end up he goes to this island and they end up coming across a uh like a demon gate i guess a gateway to hell if you will and uh yeah i mean it it follows it follows these lead characters just kind of trying to figure out this mystery and you know this was an uve bowl so obviously based off of something good and then tossed into a trash can <clears throat> <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. But uh, seriously, like, this movie was kind of out there. Yeah, it was. Um, I don't really like to, like, trash stuff, in, you know, that's when it's not <laughs> <laughs> in the comfort of my own home. Um, it's okay. But Okay, Juve, Juve Bowl has retired. Yeah. He is no longer He will not be listening to he's this now, and, like, blacklist me. He's, um, he's, he's now a restaurateur <laughs> in Germany, so he's good to go. He's, he's moved on, on food. Donors uh, yeah. out in not Germany one of my favorites. Um, I, I, I don't remember when I saw it, but um, I didn't rewatch it because I... <laughs> For you know obvious reasons. I'll be honest. I don't know how it ends. Um, I don't even really remember that much about the movie. To be honest, um, I just know that I remember it not being good, and it was kind of like one of those where like, well, never gonna watch that again, and you like move on. Um, but it was funny. I was looking at IMDb to kind of remind myself of this movie, and I liked one of the reviews that said a better title would have been "Alone in the Theater." <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that. That was like a good summary of, good. The, of the movie. Um, you know, yeah, as, we usually come across one uh, that we trash. So. Yeah, as actors, you know, you don't always know. Sometimes the script's great and it doesn't turn out well. Um, you know, it's unfortunate. It's, it's really hard to make a movie, um, and it's really, really hard to make a good movie. So uh, it's you know, not not everything's a winner, and that's okay. I'm sure there's some people out there I that love- like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love I love how Rebecca put that because it's really it's it's hard to make a movie. It is really hard to make a good yeah. movie, <laughs> and it is. And one thing, and it's interesting you brought that up. You know, with these caliber of actors, I mean, come on. I mean, you've got Christian Slater, you got Stephen Dorff. Both of them have had you know Christian Slater on uh, Mr. Robot oh, God, is yeah. absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It shows the range of his ability. Stephen Dorff has been. I mean, he's been acting. You know, child actor since The Gate. You know, and I loved him in that. And I've loved it. I loved him in Blade, and you know, and, and uh, he's done. It's just a wide range of stuff that he's done, and I love watching him work. And then, of course, Tara Reid um, has had her moments. I'm not going to trash Tara, but you know, either way, uh, you know, child of the '90s. But either way, you have a, a wide range of talent. William Sanderson, a terrific character actor, who's been around for forever. But in this respect, we we were we were diving into it. What we discovered is that uh, Juve. Um, shot shot all of his stuff out of the country. He didn't shoot in America because obviously it was much much cheaper, and he also uh, funded his stuff through through uh, basically through Germany. And when you make movies in Germany, Germany offered at the time I'm not sure if it's the same, but Germany was offering fifty percent tax credits to film to film uh, movies there. And with that fifty percent, you're basically getting half your stuff, half your money back. Just for shooting there in that film, so that freed up a ton of money in order to actually secure some, you know, A-list talent 
to come out there and actually work in these movies. And because that was the big question is how does he keep securing these? If you look at In the Name of the King, he got uh, Jason Statham, he got Cristana Loken, Burt Reynolds, Ray Liotta, uh, John Reese Davies, um, Lily Sobieski, and I know that there were there were a spattering of other names out there that are that are not as recognizable. But he had a massive cast. It's like how do you do this? It's like well, it's easy when you're already guaranteeing half of your money back from fil- you know, filming in this country, and then you shoot in countries like Prague and Czechoslovakia, you know where things are not as regulated, things are quite cheap. Then you you can you can have that budget expense go to these top billed actors, and really kind of generate the buzz that way. But that doesn't always play. Yeah, like when you have a twenty million dollar budget on Alone in the Dark, and your opening weekend gross is like two point eight million, and then worldwide was twelve million dollars. Yeah, yeah. At least you're getting yeah, half the right. money and, back. And, he, and it was based off a video game. I think this was the second of his video game adaptations. The first one was House of the Dead. Yeah, and that one was also a major stinker. And then this one was based on Alone, in the, and it wasn't even based on the first Alone in the Dark. It was based on the fourth. So yeah, it wasn't you even know, that's following. weird. Not not even a lot of people played that game because Alone in the Dark was never even really a great series. No, so I mean, you combine you you combine a lackluster video game series and probably the worst entry in that series, and then you combine Uve Bowl, woohoo, mm-hmm. and you get I think what was arguably the worst film ever made. I, One of them, quite possibly. <laughs> and um, you know, Rebecca brings up a really good point because. As you're reading scripts and stuff like that, a lot of times you don't know how the final product is going to be because, like, I remember listening to the interview of Mark Hamill with Star Wars when he got the script to New Hope, and they all thought it was a comedy kind of thing. <laughs> like, because, yeah, they didn't understand it. And I got a chance to, uh, I got a chance to talk with Lou Diamond Phillips, who he turned down The Matrix. Because he's like, I just didn't understand the script. They, you know, they, I didn't understand what was going on and everything like that. And he, we all saw how that, how big that turned out. So a lot of times, yeah. you know, talent is guessing. You know, with meeting with the director and kind of, kind of feeling out the story and kind of getting their vision. Like, could it be a good film? Because sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't, and it can be kind of hard, like figuring that out, kind of thing. But I'm, yeah, I'm curious. That brings a question. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca, in in the in the in, especially in indies, because things are so things are often you know by the seat of your pants in the indie film world, and you just kind of rush to to get done what you can get done. Have you ever run into anything like that where the, where the end result with that you when you saw it at the premiere ended up being wildly different from what you uh, kind of were, you know what what you were working on at the time? Um, choosing my words carefully here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we don't know. We no, don't no, want you no, to no, no. The no, actually, you know, if, you, if you've seen that, yourself, um, yeah. Some things are better than others. Nothing I've done was like wildly different, which I guess is is good. Um, I've I've not been involved in anything where I was filming one movie and then saw a different movie on the screen. Um, so that's good. But yeah, I mean, not everything you know always turns out the best that you know I've ever been in, and that's that's okay. Um, you know, it happens. We all. We all just strive, strive to make good projects and just do the best you can and you move on. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it just is reminiscent of kind of like what Mark Ruffalo said about um, Endgame in that he had no – as an actor, he had no idea what ending they were going to go with. Right. And he shot like five different endings for that film. Himself, like, like he, So he was in five different endings with a very smattering of the other characters and he wasn't 100% sure exactly what was going on or how it was going to end. 
But that, then again, that could be a combination of the fact that Mark likes to spoil everything, and the uh, the Russo brothers wanted to keep everybody on their toes and make sure that if something got leaked, it wasn't the right thing. I don't I don't know about that. But you have an actor there, Mark Ruffalo, who has no idea what's happening. He's just literally going off the script and filming scenes that will never see the light of day. Right. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and that's also Marvel is so secretive. I mean, I've, you know, I hope project like that someday where I don't know what's going on. That's, I mean, it's, that's just that world. They're so, um, they have to be because they can't risk, you know, anyone finding out or leaking um you know, the ending for the audience. So I can understand, like, a situation you wouldn't know exactly what's going on. But in the indie world, you know, usually they're not that, uh, have to be that secretive. I mean, obviously you don't want to give away the ending, but it's not as, like, most likely someone's not going to try to find it to put it online, you know, whereas Marvel, like, there are people that try to find out so they can spoil it for people. So it just takes it one does, person to yes. own it for everybody. I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I could see Rebecca as like Dazzler. Yeah, there you go. In the MCU, well, you. if you do with, with the screen MCU, I could see that. Disney, Disney, if, if you, you're if listening, you need someone you know? if you're looking, you know. Yeah, Dazzler, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Wonder Girl or Lady Blackheart. I'm sorry, this is not a comic podcast. I apologize. I could go on that all day long. Shit, we just got sucked into another universe. <laughs> Star, oh, Star Girl. Star Girl would be good. You got to look into that campaign. Yes, I think they're making. I'd say they Rebe- a TV Rebecca show for Star already? Girl MCU. Bring it on. <laughs> I think I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. It's hard she, to keep up uh, with everything. <laughs> well, she. But anywhere, anywhere in the universe, <laughs> yeah, I would so actually love to like be able to wear like both. some kind of cool prosthetics <laughs> and be some cool something in any in Star Wars, any any of it actually. So I, anyone out there listening, yeah. <laughs> pick up the, Give me pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. <laughs> we'll start a petition and, below. Well, we we can honestly say that despite the yo know, having done House of the Dead, having done Alone in the Dark, having done In the Name of the King, um, you know, postal rampage like this, that despite a tumultuous career, you know, uh, I can say honestly about Uwe Boll that he did love what he was doing. He was dedicated to what he did. He was a dedicated filmmaker. And whether or not people loved it or not, he was going to fucking put out a goddamn movie. And he did it. He did it multiple times over. I mean, he's got an extensive filmography. I mean, if you, I mean, I can't imagine. We know how hard it is to get a fucking film done. I mean, I've, I've had short films, which were nightmares just to get in the can. And this guy was wrangling multi-million dollar productions with, with giant ensemble A-list casts. And you got to give it to him. So he he did it. He got it done. He did it his own way, you know, Frank Sinatra style. He did it his way, and uh, he but he did retire. So he backed off from uh, after the I think the debacle with his last film. It was um uh, president. It was like Rampage, President Down. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think yeah, it was like the third in his in his in his uh, like Rampage trilogy. Um, he he retired. I think he retired from that after the. It was so insane trying to get that one funded that he eventually did retire. I believe he is a restaurateur now. In uh, I think in his in his home of Germany, and uh, his wife and him still produce, um, so he is still producing stuff. You know, just you know, just funding stuff, getting stuff done, and doing that. But he, as far as I know, he is legitimately retired from filmmaking. Just the internet, I think he fell prey to that. He felt he, I think he, I think he did what nobody should do is he fed yeah. the trolls and he actually read the comments, 
And he, I think he took it a little bit too personally. So, because his reactions down the road at the end were really, really, really angry. So, but, uh, hey, hats off to him. You know, he, he did it. I <laughs> he mean, he had, he, he really he fucking did it. did it. So he had his, he had his own style and, you know, we talk about like the Quentin Tarantino's and Christopher Nolan's and how they have their own styles and stuff. He had his own style. He stuck to it kind of thing despite what a lot of people said and you know i'll you know i'll be honest there's a couple that's kind of fun to watch you know i'm not going to say they're going to be nominated for best picture or anything like that but some of them are they're they're kind of fun and he know he went out and tried and i'll never knock a filmmaker for going out yeah i mean it's tough to make a film and then to get it out there and anyone actually sees it um those are you know two difficult things so hats like you said hats (laughs) off to anyone that can make a film and get it out that's you know it's not easy. <laughs> That's I know, I know we've dogged on him a lot, but uh, I've uh, it, you mentioned the Rampage series there, Jared, and mm-hmm. I, I I think that was probably one. I mean, besides obviously Doom and actually Alone in the Dark, I think that was one of the first films that I ever saw by him, and I thought that first one it it hit me like I was I was drugged into that movie and it made me feel all sorts of different kinds of way. And by the end of the movie, I was like, wow, I totally understand both sides of the film. So I think he did do some, some good stuff. I mean, I don't think you could do a, like a rampage film now just because of what's going on in the world. But I I think that film, like you said, he's got his own style and that really came out in that movie. Um, And I liked it that it was away from the video game thing because as cool as video game movies are, they're so hard to do, especially when you've got such like hardcore fan bases that if you get one thing wrong in the movie, you're going to get, you know, like you said, the trolls are going to be out there just screaming at you. And like you said, that kind of probably had a lot to do with him backing off because he was so hurt by the negative reactions. But like you said, he went out there and did it. So it's kind of a, a double-headed coin here where it's like, yeah, great job. Way to go. You started your career. You did what you wanted to do. You finished it. You know, no major giant hiccups. But... uh yeah, so that's kind of, I'd, I'd like to ask the audience, how do you feel about Uwe Boll? You know, did you like him? Did you not like him? What were your favorite films? Uh, if there was something that he could have done differently, like, what do you think? Uh, let us know. Shoot us a comment. I do, I do honestly think that the Rampage series was, uh, apart from his German stuff, because his early German stuff was really, it was actually actually quite good. He was a really raw, a really good raw director. But, um his rampage series was solid. Was pretty solid. I think I'm going to put the the strength of that on Brendan Fletcher, who I think is just a, is a phenomenal actor. I recently saw him in uh, the Night Hunter. Oh yeah, and he was oh, fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God, he plays that, that role so stunned. well. Oh yeah. So he's just a. I mean, I, I love watching him work. He he can go. He can go 90 miles an hour, or he can bring it back. Real good. So just you know, he can make you things. feel the dark side of yourself, which is cool. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, he captured it. So you know, I want to give I'm gonna give him a little shout for that because the Rampage movies I can see where Bull I think that the Rampage movies epitomize kind of Bull's mentality and Bull's you know, worldview and that's the things that really upset him about you know the world itself. I, I think he's a big I don't think he's anti-capitalist, but I think he hates the politics and the just the the bullshit red tape that comes with sometimes making films and stuff like that. Kind so. of like taking all that money and burning it. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Hell yeah! Oh, right on. All right, Eugene. Let's uh, let's move forward. All right. Next, we got the movie coming up 
was released January 30th, 2007, and the movie is Prey, directed by Daryl Root, written by Jeff Wadlew, starring Carly Schroeder, Peter Weller, and Bridget, I'm going to butcher her last name, so I'm sorry right now, but <laughs> Bridget Mahonen? Moynihan. 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 Yeah, Bridget Moynihan. Oh, yeah, Bridget Moynihan. And our man Peter Weller back. Peter Weller. Peter Weller, man. Two. Two in one episode. <laughs> Love me some Peter Weller. But Bray, it's, Bray is about a family that actually goes to Africa, right, to go help, a, go help build a dam. And while they're out there trying to get this thing built, they're actually being stalked and killed off by a pack of lions kind of thing it's it's very it's very close to like ghosts in the darkness kind of thing where you're trying to get something built and you start you start getting hunted by like this apex style like predator kind of thing that basically is it's not even killing for food anymore it's killing just for the sake of killing because it actually enjoys it kind of thing and what's really terrifying what's really terrifying about the movie is that you know as us, like, we like to see ourselves as a top species. We're the humans. We're the best. We have all this technology and all this other kind of stuff. But when you're actually out in the jungle or in the savanna or, you know, in their territory, yeah. the lion's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it. The lion, you're in his world. Yeah, the Ghost in the Darkness is actually one of my, I know we're talking about Prey, but on a side note, uh, really love that movie. Um, yeah, we, and we, we went to Chicago a few years ago for our friend's wedding and we went to a museum and they actually have one of the lions that was one of, one of the two in the museum. It's like so fascinating. Um, yes. Which museum? Yeah. That's, out the, that's out of the, the Chicago Field Museum. Hey, my yes. grandpa was a, a paleontologist at the Chicago Museum, uh, Field Museum. His name is all over like their T Rex uh, Sue. Oh, that's really cool. He was on like a bunch of the digs when oh, they found cool. a lot of that stuff. That's, no, that's yeah, from uh, yeah. I'm a big, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I love animal up, I movies, um, both like when they're nice and when they're not. Um, <laughs> like you know, little dog movies are very cute. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like this is this is one I had seen a while back. Um, didn't rewatch it, but um, didn't have time. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I enjoyed it. You know, it's one of those ones where it's not the best movie, but you have fun anyway, and you just you're not really sure, you know, how they're gonna do it, and like when the animals are gonna attack, and I don't know. It's just I like all of like Jaws is one of my favorites. Like, I just love. I don't know. Something about animals um, that are terrifying. There's something fun about watching those. <laughs> <laughs> it's so real like did, it brings a realism I have to, to I, have to, I have to admit I also like animal films but I got I prefer the horror ones over the yeah ones because when they're nice bad things always happen to them and, <sighs> oh, Lion yeah. King. and like uh Turner and Hooch yeah you know, old yellow exactly right oh oh god you had to go there uh <laughs> you brought it up it right, popped in my yeah, head yeah I, I recently right watched the, the art man. of racing in the rain over so I prefer the horror Christmas um and thankfully, they didn't oh. show the like the dog passing, but it was such a beautiful film. And by the end, I'm just like my eyes are leaking, and I'm like, dogs, dogs are so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody call the plumber. 
<laughs> because I recently I recently signed up for Disney Plus because I had to watch The Mandalorian and I was I was going to promise myself I'm going to cancel this free trial. Yeah, I'm right. not going to do it. <laughs> and then I started watching Marvel movies again. And then I then I was like, oh wow. <laughs> White Fang is on here. I gotta watch that. So I started watching these on movies. Too. Sorry, is... I come home from I come home from work one day and Angela's watching uh, Turner and Hooch, and I'm like, "Oh, Tom Hanks, this is fantastic!" I was to watch Turner and Hooch, and I sat there and was like, "Oh God, here it comes." I'm 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 almost forty years old. I'm gonna be forty. I'm gonna be forty <laughs> here in a few months, and I'm sitting here just like being all still and everything. It's just like just ugly crying, don't, but not really don't. making a big show of it. Just. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen this movie like fucking forty times. No, it and it's like one of those easier. movies, like it when it's like that. It's like I can only watch it once because I know. Which is, you know, it's like I know it's coming. I just can't, can't. Why would you do it to yourself? <laughs> and you see, exactly, and you see, and you see the, the and the better, the 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 nicer, more positive the animal movie, the worse it's going to be. Because at least Turner yeah. and Hooch, it's a it's a cop. It, you know, they're, they're cops. Okay, so you know something you you can prepare yourself. You know it's a, it's a dangerous uh, job, line of duty. But come on, Marley yeah. and me. Oh no, God, why? why? No, stop it. Okay, this a, is a horror a podcast. Dog... Stop making me cry. <laughs> a dog's yeah. life? Absolutely not. Just like no. So yeah, it was killing me. That's why I prefer the horror movies because the horror movies I'm not going to cry, and I would be. Well, like, and they're not like usually they're not like real because you have to but, CGI yeah, yeah, in them. Actually, you know, because like you can't have like. A, I mean, most right. of the time <laughs> they're not actually. You know, whereas the the cute animals are like usually real, so there's definitely something about that that you know, even if they didn't actually die, you still like you know obviously feel for them. Whereas these, like, yeah, you're like, please get back at the, please kill them or whatever. Um. <laughs> <laughs> See, that, and that's that was the that's the that's the beauty of I think uh, there was a time. In the 80s and the 90s, when animal horror, when yeah, you know, obviously Jaws kicked this off, you know they they made it mainstream. You had you had bad you know bad animal movies you know throughout, but I think Jaws is what made it. it was just taking animals, uh, apex predators, and turning them into horror icons. You know Jaws you know you know made people afraid of sharks, and then you had um, I think there was uh what was it movies like uh, Prophecy and stuff like that made people afraid of bears, and then you had like Grizzly Park. And you have all kinds of, you know, like bears and stuff like that. And lions, of course, Ghosts in the Darkness, you know, uh, made people afraid of lions. And then bears stuff like that. But I absolutely I love it because uh was one of my absolute favorites. Um, Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Um, oh, Instinct. The Edge. Oh, sorry, different one. Yeah, The Edge. And when the two of them are lost in the woods, you know, they get they get they get attacked by a grizzly bear. And this grizzly bear starts tracking them through the woods. And where it's more of a character drama than it is, it's not. It's just a thriller because you know it's a character drama between the two men while they're dealing with this fucking bear. And one of my favorite bear actors, um, I know he passed away recently. It was Bart the Bear. Um, yeah. He was a legend, legendary uh, trained bear for films. Mm-hmm. Um, huge, massive Kodiak grizzly. He's like the but in, uh, like other than the death scene, everything shot with him was the bear. Was that literally that like I think a he much was more like eleven like, hundred pounds? I don't know. Terrifying when you bear, know which that it's an actual real. Could be with anything. You so, know, it has like the weight to it. I don't know. It's just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to imagine Anthony Hopkins. You know, when the bear is like over him, going oh in his face and like that. Well, because it's, it's like, still people, it's the, still people, a wild uh, animal. Off camera, going it's okay. It's all right. And, no need and animals are unpredictable, even if they're He's... trained. So it's still, it's still scary. Still a fucking bear. Yeah. <laughs> still a fucking bear. Very true. 
Very yeah, it's true. wild because I think I think Bart had a career that spanned like oh, oh almost fifteen years. Never yeah, had, had an incident. Be, yeah. Never, you know, and and you uh, just a loving bear since you know. I think he was raised. I think he was raised as a cub, and mm-hmm. yeah, and just ne- was just, just loved what he yeah. did, and was just yeah. so personable with everyone he worked with, and was always kind and gentle. And I guess they, that's a remark to the trainer. You know, the, the, the guy who brought him up because mm-hmm. – and I think he's brought up other bears as well. It's like he specializes in this. But taking people out of their comfort zones and putting 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 reminding – I think reminding audiences that we are not the masters of our domain. Whether you're in the water or you're in the desert or you're in the woods or you're in the Arctic or whatever like that, there is – I like the, the horror there because it, it's, it's reality there. You're putting them out of their element. You're making, you're reminding people that you are not built. Oh, so yeah, for the some wolves. places oh, in ugh. this world. <laughs> and were you in it like the gray? Okay. Mm-hmm. The yes. Okay, <laughs> so you're in the so the gray. I mean, these guys work in the Arctic, and you can get that kind of sense of yeah. We've been we've been here like eight months, a year, a year and a half. We're masters of our domain. We got this shit on lockdown, and then all of a sudden you change one thing. And you you ain't shit. <laughs> oh yeah. And if done correctly, you can really really sell some terror. And that um, a recent one I saw was a was a bear movie, and it was just a black bear in this one. It wasn't even that big. But I you know I'm a Boy Scout. I, I'm an Eagle Scout. I've been to Philmont. I've hiked a high you know, um, I've hiked a uh, high adventure and been out in the you know the New Mexico mountains. And you know even a 600 pound black bear that, that is no joke. Okay, even a four hundred pound one is no joke. They they are dangerous as shit, and you know you find yourself in the wrong place. And I love that kind of horror that just sells yeah. that. He's like, oh yeah, take you out of the city, put you in the wrong spot, and you are in a serious world of hurt. <laughs> oh yeah, so, oh I'm definitely. From the north, and out in Minnesota and Wisconsin, you would see like baby black bears like climbing up trees. We even had one come through. I used to live in this little town in Minnesota. It used to it just would walk through the middle of town. Like, what's up? What's going on? But like you said, one thing wrong. You get in the between, like, even a small black bear and their cub. Like, <laughs> oh, good luck. <laughs> uh, you better and that's the And, and mentioning this with this kind of situation, because um, Prey was inspired by mm-hmm. the lead, by uh, the, the Savo Maneaters. Yeah, Rebecca that, said earlier that Rebecca she saw mentioned one at, earlier, uh, yeah. the Field Museum. Yeah, the Savo Maneaters, they yeah. were a pair of lions in the Savo region. Um, they're responsible for a number of deaths of construction workers that were working on a railway between, um, it was like Kenya, Uganda, and then to the um, Indian Ocean. And... It, this it was like it was that's the scary thing it was based off this this real story and these two lions um ended up stalking and killing these construction workers and there was like a lieutenant uh i believe his name was henry patterson that yeah i think he was, i think he was a lieutenant colonel yeah lieutenant yeah. colonel henry patterson that's right and uh so he ended up going out there and after these these lions had been just eating people which was like super they're not out there to like eat people that's like prey it's like oh yeah they were they were going to eat all the they're not that's not normal behavior for lions they're usually going to kind of stay back and mind their own business but for whatever reason uh these lions were just killing these people but so Patterson they ended up having to fight these things and he shot one of them like in the ass in the back like the back leg and it ended up getting away and then it came back and while patterson was looking for it this thing was stalking him the whole time and he ended up killing the first lion 
And then they shot the second lion nine times before it went down. Like, it wasn't just like an easy, hey, one shot, one kill thing. Like, these things were stalking these people, and they weren't going to stop until they were dead. And it, it, there was like a whole investigation and research, and they're even still looking into it. Because from what um, from what I was reading, there was, they said like a hundred or more people. Um, but then yeah, they, I think the estimates were like a hundred. Yeah, but then it, it really only ended people. up being like between like twenty five and thirty five or something like that. And uh, just from what they know, but like they still are doing research into why these lions were attacking these people. And when they brought them over to the field museum, I remember my grandpa talking about it because um, this happened all back in uh, eighteen ninety eight. And so when we went and we tour with them, because he was real into it, um, they, they talked about it, how they were doing like all this analysis on like their bones and trying to figure out why the heck these two lions just became murderous, like for sport almost, it seemed, because they were just killing everybody. <laughs> it, it, there was even like accidents, like they would show up and people get scared and fall off of stuff and die. So they were just like out there just being assholes. I think I think um, there was a, I think what some of the locals said because Savo was at the time you know reading up on the history of the, of the actual area was an awful god was just a god awful area it was malaria plagued um, there were people dying left and right um, it was just it was a very it was kind of like Mos Eisley you know a villainous den of scum and villainy and there was a lot and because the whole place was split between uh, the Muslims and the Jews or the Muslims and the Hindus and. That you know, there was constant class warfare going on, and just you know, like you know, just so, social strife. And so, if you combine all of that, you combine the sick, you combine injuries on the on the railroad, on building the railroad, you combine, you know, the occasional bursts of you know, spouts of violence, stuff like that. And there were several high rank, I guess, high ranking people, like several, like I guess, like I don't know if you call them, uh, you know, religious leaders that believed that the lions were. Ghosts. That's where they got their name, the Ghosts in the Darkness, and that they were the spirits of dead medicine men who would, who were returning to stop the English from conquering Africa. That's, you know, at the expense theory. of all of these African lives. So it was the story behind that, and how they, you know, because the story of the Savo man eaters is just it's it's kind of like it's anecdotal to us here in America because you know the lions there you can go see them. Oh, it's just two it's two maneless lions. Like that, and, and it kind of puts in. It allows us to compartmentalize it. But there in Africa, it's like legend across the continent that people know of it, and has inspired its own kind of like you know legends that grew up all around it. It's really really impressive, and kind of a rare event, but one of those cool things. And that's why I like horror based on that. Is like horror that really strives from reality. Well, and, and see, you brought up. I'm sorry, you brought up uh, all the stuff that was going on there, disease and all that stuff. And that was another theory brought up was. Like, their natural prey had fallen uh, victim to, like, this disease. It was almost like a... It was called uh, Rinderpest. It was a cattle plague. And, their, their, you know, their normal prey would have been, like, cattle. And um, with them being diseased, they had to find food elsewhere. You get a full railway full of just, you know, big, juicy... Railroad workers. <laughs> They're not humans. They're like, whatever, hey, this <laughs> they don't smell like disease and they look pretty little, so let's go ahead and try yeah. these guys. Yeah. It's gnarly. I did like in Prey how they, they focused it that on the lionesses. That it was the females. Yeah, yeah. It was doing that. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's more that's more true to reality. Although the ghosts in the darkness were two male lions that were running together, which is very, very weird. 
No one really understood that. The whole thing was weird. Like I said, they're yeah. still looking into it. Like, why the heck did this happen? And, you know, you think Mother so, Nature, like, shit goes down and it's, sometimes you got to, like, change and adapt. But for, like, for a predator like that to just absolutely switch everything about itself over to this new, like, tactics, hunting styles, prey that they've never seen before was just super weird. Yeah. It, hey, Jaws, Jaws was based on, on actual events that bull shark. Yeah. Swam up that estuary in New Jersey and wound up, I think, killing three people. So. Oh yeah, I forgot yeah, about that it was too. Just, it was, yeah, it was a bull shark in, up. It was a bull shark in New Jersey that happened. That actually may somehow made its way north and wound up swimming up a brackish river during a summer and wound up killing. Yeah, killing like I think it was like three people um, that were in there because it was a big hot spot, <laughs> you know, for people to go and cool off during the hot New Jersey summers. So. But yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, never know what you might get. <laughs> that's, if you couldn't that's make, crazy. if you could make New Jersey any worse, it would be with a shark. <laughs> you just throw a shark in there. <laughs> just kidding. Love you, New Jersey. <laughs> and you know, and this actually brings us to uh, our question: Is what aspect of animal horror do you do you love? Do you love the aspect of you know? kind of like a man against nature kind of thing, like say something like a gray or maybe something that's kind of out of place like in Prey or the Ghost in the Darkness where it's all of a sudden these animals are acting strange or something like that. So let us know in the comments below what do you like about animal horror or maybe what you don't like about it. All right, what do we got next? All right, we are going to close out our week and this is a particularly special one. I like this one. Uh, released February 1st, 1977. Uh, epic, epic, legendary film, Suspiria. Ooh. Ooh. Now, I, I adore I love this movie. I love this movie. Uh, written and directed by Dario Argento, starring a, a, starring a diverse and foreign cast. Um, it does have our, our, legend, uh, our legend Udo Kier in there, who I love that dude. We talked about him on a previous episode uh, when it was his birthday. Um, but also featured Jessica Harper, uh, Stefania Cassini, Flavio Bucci, and Miguel Bosé. Among others, a huge ensemble cast. Um, a, this movie was go is up in my top is literally up in my top ten. It is a story that follows a young woman who joins a ballet company who travels overseas to join this ballet company and discovers that the company has a very bloody and supernatural past to it because it's not just a ballet company; it is run by a coven of particularly nasty witches who are trying to summon up the mother of their coven. It's just in a wildly, wildly powerful film in many, many respects and uh, should be on every horror fans watch list. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. I actually hadn't seen the original. Um, I had seen the remake. And so uh, per to get ready for this interview, I went and watched it and I'm so glad I did. It was so good. Um, it's still, I feel like it still holds up even now and especially watching it for the first time now. Um, you know, it was beautiful, beautifully shot, uh, really fascinating, interesting movie. And I feel like even though I hadn't, even though I'd seen the remake, it didn't necessarily spoil the movie. I feel like the beginning, like the, when they're the double murder sequence was like oh so horrifying. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh my God, with the falling metal. And the, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> good luck sleeping tonight, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, all around. I thought it was really, really awesome. I know that um, with the remake that they uh, they did a special 
it, before it was released, there, there was some event that they, they did kind of like a, we've made a remake of the movie and here's a scene. They, they did a promotional scene where they just showed one particular scene from the remake film. And it was the, the mirror room dance scene. Mm-hmm. And that there were, there were audience members that, that reported that they felt traumatized after watching that. Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. It was the, it, that was in the remake. Now the, this original one, the, the original Dario Argento one, um, well, they both tell the same story. Um, both the, the each director uh, took it in a wildly different direction mm-hmm. as far as what they were trying to say. Whereas this new one, uh, the remake focused more on it, it was very, 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 very much an uh, kind of an experimental art film, where and and it focused much more on the horror because we could do so so much more with you know practical effects and and uh, other various things. Like that, that mirror room. That I watched that scene. And that one was just whoa. That that one was visceral. Yeah. And that was the focus of this one. Whereas Argento's original one was about creating an atmosphere that was that was both that was he wanted to create an earthly atmosphere that was as that appeared and made you feel like you were looking at an alien landscape that was evocative and visceral and completely like you were completely out of your element but you're not you're you're here you're in this building and like that but once you walk through those doors it's not your world anymore and how this girl the his his lead actress is navigating this this terrifying psychologically affecting denizen of these evil women who are doing this to or who are using these girls to their you know to their own advantage it's a it's a a powerful film both of them and i think more and and more in argentos because his use of color and his use of oh, light. Oh yeah. The oh, way, absolutely. The way that this movie yeah. just holds you down against the couch too, like you said, the color and light, and just like the feeling from start to finish, from that first double murder scene, like you were talking about, it really pulls you in. Now, I always remember uh, it because what actually reminded me of this movie because I'd seen it a long time ago, and then I watched. Uh, I think it was called like the Black Swan or something um, with. <sighs> Natalie Portman or whatever, but then it reminded me of this movie because it was like the the psychological where it's pulling you left and right. But then, so I ended up going back and watching this after that movie came out. And like you said, the use of color and light and the way that they like one particular scene that I remember was when they were talking in the office and they were like zooming in and like a, it was just like I catch myself leaning forward into the TV screen sometimes and leaning back and uh, I just I and coming from like I know Eugene, you play around a lot with the camera and. Um, JL, you've been on a lot of sets too. I can't imagine mm-hmm. working with somebody who had this idea and being able to bring like it's you. That's just you're walking around a totally different world, like you said. I just and like, it's it's imagine. really it's really fascinating because it's actually one of the last films that was shot in Technicolor, was, kind of thing. They really used that, it to its full potential. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because they were going for. Like that old style Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, those really vibrant colors that was you see a lot in like the say the thirties and forties when color was like brand new in film. And so he wanted to actually go back and use that process for it to help bring that's why it's so vivid. The colors punt like pop out of the screen for it, kind of thing, for a movie at the time. And Rebecca I think it was it was it was uh, Luciano Tavoli was who worked on this and he's a legendary cinematographer um because he's worked he worked on uh on titus uh i think it was julie tamor's titus mm-hmm. and you can see his effects because you, you can see kind of like what, what where he goes and he's always trying to break new boundaries 
and do you know just do new things every single time. He does. He has a style, but he always is searching to do something new, and and it, you know he experiments and he goes for broke and he takes he takes wild risks that for some reason I mean in his genius they always they pay always off. work out. And that's Rebecca had said earlier, like this movie still holds up, but in more way than just you know it, it could be a movie that you could do today. But even back in '77, like they did it better than I, I could. I mean, you'd have to bring back the director. You'd have to bring back some of the writers and stuff to kind of get that same feeling. It kind of blew stuff. I would call it better than a lot of a lot of newer movies. I would rather see these kinds of uh, visual adaptations, if you will, rather than like these newer movies that are just like so cut and dry. I'd rather look at a, a set and feel the set. Which is what they really Absolutely. they really did in this whole movie the whole time. Any corner you went around, any room you walked in, it was always just like you could feel what they were going for, and that was super cool. Yeah, Jessica Harper turned in a a phenomenally a phenomenal um, performance in this as Susie. I mean, I mean, her whole journey from the naive girl that walks in, you know, to the very very end, you know, she's standing there. You can see. She emoted the way the character, her, her entire arc was just summed up in that moment when she's there and she's outside and the school is is just, you know, is burning down, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. And just the way Argento, everything, the, the, the whole team on that, you know, just is a visual masterpiece, just an absolute treat to the eyes. It, it really is. And it, the fact that, you know, not a lot of not a lot of Italian films get a lot of attention here in the United States, and especially back in 1977, the fact that it's influencing people. You know, you talk about movies like Black Swan, you got the remake, and a lot of other films that has actually influenced going away from the okay, this is how we typically shoot uh, a slasher movie. This is how we typically shoot this kind of a horror movie. It's like, no, we're going to go, we're going to take some artistic license and we're going to try to show you something in a different way that I think only a lot of horror films in US in the US are just now catching on to. That's a, You say they take influence. Did you know that uh, the color scheme of this movie was molded around Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, actually? Um, oh wow! That's really the, interesting. Yeah, the director uh, Argento had Luciano watch Snow White and the Seven Doors to have a model of color scheme. Uh, after that, so that's like I mean, if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of red, yellow, um, those deep colors. So super cool. It's so wild. I know that, um, and go, kind of going into the history behind it and where Argento got his inspiration is that there is a uh, there was an English essayist called Thomas De Quincey. And um, anybody studying up on their horror, their horror history, or their, I would say their literary history, and things like this, there, this essayist wrote uh, a, a basically a collection uh, called the Suspiria de Profundis, which is Latin for "Sighs from the Depths," and uh, the whole thing is a a compilation of kind of like psychological fantasy essays that he wrote, um, mostly inspired by his experiences when he was deep in the throes of opium addiction. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, we you, that tracks you know very much, but um, the, his stuff is really profound, really profound stuff. And I know that Argento took from those essays, took from took from the uh, the Suspiria de Profundis, and developed. I think that Suspiria was the first of a trilogy, and that I think called the Three Mothers trilogy. Yeah, so, so it's actually the first one in a trilogy, and then you have the second one that came out called Inferno which came out in 1980 
And then the third one, throughout a delayed release and a couple of other issues that happened, was called The Mother of Tears that came out in 2007. So it definitely took uh, a long time to fully out like and finish the trilogy behind it. That's which spread. Yeah, that's a yeah. that's like Terminator spread or something like that. Probably even longer than that uh, kind of thing in terms of putting it together. But yeah, he did. He he sat through and he like finished it kind of thing, and it's amazing. If I you ever get a chance Inferno. to watch it, remember Inferno being almost like a. I think they named it like a cult classic. Oh, it is all. I mean, all three of them were really good. I mean, they're all. Um, and they all center around. I think this this uh, this mother witch. Uh, I think she, it was um, uh, Mater uh, Lacrimarum, I think is what her name is. But yeah, all three stories kind of center around this ancient, you know, powerful witch. You know, and if you haven't seen them, all three of the films, you, and now that all three of them are out, and especially Three, three Mothers is is really, really fascinating. Just a, an engrossing film. I don't think holds the power of Suspiria um, because there was so much more context into Suspiria. And I think because it was... It was where Argento started. He he put much much more into it and really got to create this masterpiece. And I mean, hell, the film grossed over a billion in um in Italy. No, oh, wow. Jesus. It was like one point four three. Yeah, one point four three billion was its gross in Italy, and then it was like one point eight million in North America in North American rentals. But for a uh, tip for the for the I think what 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 currency did they use over there? Um, <laughs> baguettes or something i guess but yeah but 1.43 billion in that in his native country is pretty damn impressive for a film in 1977 so but yeah an amazing series of films starting with suspiria and i i'm i absolutely adore the the no i think i don't think he was trying to capitalize on the final girl um but the way he wrote it and i don't think she comes off like a final girl she really doesn't she she comes off as a girl who was strong and didn't realize her strength but and but he you know the concept of you know a professional ballet company that's that's hard enough as it is, and then her arc it was more of her growth arc, and just kind of like finding herself in that it was just I think just beautifully done absolutely stellar, you know yeah she had a great and arc in question. the movie, sorry <laughs> oh yeah absolutely absolutely I like I'm 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 very much in the Joss Whedon camp of that where. I would much rather, you know, strong, like strong female characters or powerful female characters. I, I did. I, I mean, I understand the trope of the final girl, and you know, the you know, finding her strength and beating the bad guy and coming out on top and like this. I get that. I get the the notion of it, but that's more of an American trope as far as horror goes, because you know, as Cabin in the Woods taught us, we pretty much have a formula. Yeah, horror is you know, mostly formulaic. Yeah. In that respect, mm-hmm. but I think Argento. It, I don't think I don't think he, that's what he was going for. That's not what I pulled from it. It's not what I gleaned. You know, I've never. So, I didn't even. Oh no! Uh-huh. Oh no! Go ahead. I've never seen her as like the final as a final girl trope. Never have. Yeah. So, but um, like Rebecca said, she checked out the remake, and the remake itself was quite good as well. Um, I thought all of the girls, especially Tilda Swinton, I'm going to give some real props <laughs> to Tilda Swinton because she played yeah. three <laughs> fucking roles in that movie. She's incredible. Think, really, truly think, transformative. Yeah. yeah. Especially, I mean, I loved her. Recently. I bring her up because I loved her in Jim Jarmusch's uh, Dead Don't Die. <laughs> the Dead Don't Die. She was hysterical in that one. But, you know, but God, you know, she was absolutely amazing. I think the three characters played in that, I think two of them were male. 
Yeah, yeah they she, were. Yeah, she plays the psychiatrist at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't even realize, like, that was her. her. And I was like, oh, I haven't seen this guy before, you know. And I was like, oh, wait, it's not even a guy. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Dude looks like a lady. <laughs> yeah, like, it was very convinced, like, it was convincing as an old, as an older man. <laughs> yeah. I've loved her. I've loved her work since uh, since uh, Keanu Reeves and Constantine. Oh God! Uh, when she yeah. played the Archangel Gabriel, yep. uh, she was fantastic. She in that. killed that everything for that sure. she does. So that's a question for the audience: Is which, of these of this film, which did you prefer? Did you prefer the more um, I would say cerebral and psychological original, or the more horror driving? aspects of uh, of the remake both of them are visual just visual treats but which one did you like did you like the original or did you like the remake let us know in the comments we'd love to hear what you thought yeah absolutely all right well that brings us to the end of another episode of week in horror Ooh, good stuff yeah i know lots that of was good, good stuff <laughs> this makes me not gotta go watch the remake of suspiria <laughs> oh it, it's worth it it's worth it for man. sure all right. Well, as always, thank you so much to our listeners. We can't do any of this without you guys. We'd just be talking to each other and it'd be super weird. So, <laughs> so we'd really like to hear back from you. Any feedback, comments, questions, concerns, you know the drill. Uh, hit us up on Facebook. Uh, you can also shoot us an email over at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Um, you can catch our podcast on any of your podcast platforms, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Yeah! iHeartRadio now. Mm. So you can check us out there. You can go to uh, anchor.fm and find us there as well. Um, If you're liking what we're doing and you want to kind of help us out a little bit, you can check us out on our Patreon, uh, www.patreon.com slash weekendhorror. If you donate, you know, starting at very little up to a couple of bucks, uh, you can get some extra content. We do our bloodbath, which is where we take two horror icons and pit them against each other and battle to the death. And that's always a good time. This next, this next one is so awesome, <laughs> uh, Rebecca. It's um, we put Freddy Krueger up versus the Jinn in, Wisma- in Wishmaster. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was and good. the one before that was was Michael Myers versus J- versus Jason Voorhees. So it, it's it, we do we do like like legit Oxford style debates on this. It's really fucking great. <laughs> I want to see an actual battle. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got a couple of you know movie producers and actors here. We could probably just play these out and have them as like a YouTube series. I don't know, man. Oh, uh, maybe maybe something like <laughs> we that. Have so many ideas for this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> so with with the Patreon, you'll get our bloodbath. Um, also, our After Dark, which we'll be doing with Rebecca after this episode, where we go and sit down with our special guests and get to know them a little bit better and talk about some of their work and some of their thoughts on the industry. Um, check us out on Facebook.com slash Horror. Uh, follow us, like us there. You'll get a little bit of Daily Splatter, which is just a little bit of horror history every single day. Uh, we're also on Twitter now, at Week in Horror, so you can hit us up on there. Shoot us comment, questions. Yeah. And then thank you. Thank you again, Rebecca Rebecca Kennedy, for joining us. It's been so great having you on the show. Uh, is there anything you would like our listeners to know, like what's coming up for you? Yeah, well, first off, uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. I've had so much fun talking about uh, these movies with you guys. 
yeah, I have a film called Limbo with James Purefoy. It premiered at the Beverly Hills Film Festival last year, and so we're hoping that uh, I will have distribution uh, news for everyone soon where you guys can see that. I'm really excited. It's, I'm really proud of the film, and I'm excited for everyone to see it. And then I have two uh, other films coming coming up. Uh, one is called A Dark Foe with uh, Graham Greene and Selma Blair. That will be premiering at a film Ooh. festival next month. I don't know if I'm allowed to say which one yet, so <laughs> I won't say yet, <laughs> just in case, to cover my bases. Uh, well, when yeah, you can, we can plug you. Right. I haven't seen that one yet, but I'm really excited to see it all put together. Uh, I look very different in the film, so I'm excited for people to see that. And then I have uh, one other one called Los Angeles that I filmed uh, in 2018 as well. And we did some pickups last uh, last year, so hopefully we'll be coming out uh, soon-ish. So, yeah, that's where people can keep their eyes open and uh, hopefully have some more stuff to share as well. Sweet. Dropping some big names there, Selma Blair. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Not trying to name drop, but you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> um. Now, she's, I have to tell you, I have an anecdote from when I was uh, when I was chilling with um, uh, the Boondock Saints. <laughs> they have a story that that's very similar to that. It's quite funny. But anyway, so uh, excellent. We will definitely keep our eyes open for that. Um, oh, real quick, uh, Rebecca, do you have a page that you'd like to plug where people can go check you out, or just on Facebook? Yeah, I'm on. Uh, I am on Facebook. Uh, I have a like page on there, but I don't really keep up, keep up with it as much. Um, and my personal page is about out of friends. Uh, but they can always you can always follow me on there, but don't be offended if I can't friend you because you only for whatever reason can have so many friends on Facebook, which is weird. Yeah, she's got enough friends. But be sure to follow her at at Facebook. You can find her Rebecca Kennedy on Facebook. And I'm fantastic. Yeah, I'm also on Instagram at Becca B E K A H K because my name was taken. And then Rebecca Kennedy on Twitter as well. If people still Twitter. So <laughs> Apparently, excellent. Do. All right. Okay. And uh, for your upcoming stuff, we will keep our eyes open for that. And uh, to all of our Patreons, we will see you over on After Dark. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so. Thank you so much. Sign off. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> cut out. My bad. I cut out for a second. I'm Eugene. Signing off. <laughs> Alex, signing off. This is Jail, and we'll see you next week.